Seven Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Roostrock. I'm here with my special guest today, John D. Simone. Did I say that right? Excellent. Awesome. So you're an author, which is cool because that's what I set the show up for originally. And you have the Rare Bird books out right now. Mm Mm-hmm. What is that about? Well, Rare Bird is the publisher, and um, they're here in Los Angeles, where I'm where I'm at. Uh, they're a really good, solid regional publisher. Awesome. And um, uh, my book is called The Road to Delano, which is also a California story, and it centers around the um, the epic grape strike that took place in Delano in 1968. Uh, actually, from 65 to 70, but in 68 is when my book takes place, and it's centered around uh, Cesar Chavez's fast for nonviolence. So he's not an actual main character in the book. He's in the background. Okay. But but the main characters are two high school students who are faced with, uh, one's the son of a grower, and one is the son of a farm worker. So you have the two sides of the story. And um, and they're best friends because they're on the baseball team, mm-hmm. but they come from different worlds. And they're both faced with a series of moral choices as the book um, uh, progresses that um, challenges, challenges as young men, as uh, men growing up in the world and taking their place. So it's kind of a, it's a coming of age story uh, for Jack. It's a... Um, um, a, a moral tale um, from uh, Aiden's point of view, and it's a historical novel um, in that the his- history is correct. So I have them. Um, so that's that's kind of the gist of it. Okay. So why did you okay choose historical fiction or a historical type novel? Yeah, um, so this is this is my uh, second one I've had published. I've written two or three others that never were published, and so um, I was uh, teaching freshman writing, and I came across a book of essays that I had the students uh, respond to on um, the history of civil disobedience, starting from Socrates and going down to Martin Luther King, and 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 it's one of the series of essays was on. Are you there? I'm here. Can okay, you hear me? You cut, you cut out there for a second. Sorry about that. Um, and I knew that um, Cesar Chavez was involved in the grape strike, but I didn't know to what extent he had dedicated his life to helping these uh, poor people, because they really are, were, are poor at the time and are still at the lower end of the economic scale. Um, so I began reading about him, and... Um, and I understood that he used nonviolence for the very first time in history mm-hmm. as, as a form of labor action. And I thought, wow, this is really a great subject in the, for a book. And I looked around, and no one had ac- actually written anything about it. There's plenty of books by those who have immigrated and worked in the fields, 
but none about why and what Cesar Chavez actually accomplished. So, so I said, well, I want to write a, a novel about that. I didn't think it would be a historical novel, but as you get into it, if it's not accurate in the history, mm-hmm. then, you know, it, um, it, the credibility of the story is lessened. And so I really made sure it was, was accurate. And then it, it just fell into the genre of historical and, that's what I enjoy writing. Well, there we go. Because okay, I I have a couple historical authors within my publishing house. Now I know the tedious research they do, and I love authors for this because we will research everything from the color of a grape to how long it takes to grow, just to make the story accurate. Yes, and um, because there will always be someone who knows what you're talking about. The majority of the readers don't have any idea what grapes or how they grow or where they grow even mm-hmm. um, and who picks them and what they do in the months when they're, when they're not picking. And so uh, I don't live, I live about four hours from uh, Bakersfield Delano area. And I made a, a lot of trips up there and um, researched in the library, was able to interview people and that was about a two-year, um, two-year journey to figure this all out. A lot of trips to used bookstores, mm-hmm. uh, and so yes, you're like a detective because many of the experiences of, I would say, the most disenfranchised are not recorded. You know, the experiences of the wealthy are easy. They can write a book or have someone write it about them. Right. So um, so it was, it was challenging from that point of view. But I found my greatest resources in speaking to people that were there during that time and in used bookstores. There you go. Because we, okay, with writing historical fiction, it's always important to find people that survive that er- genre, that area. If you can, yes, absolutely. I mean, you're not going to find someone that was in the Civil War, obviously. There you go, right. But if it's closer to modern time, and this was... hmm, Uh, 1960s, so yes. You would think... Yeah, so it's still modern time. There should be enough people that are alive that remember the time. Well, yes, and that people were high school students mm-hmm. at that time uh, are now, you know, um, the baby boomers, mm-hmm. and um, and I was able to to meet several of those um, and talk with them, and you get the feel for the times, what it was like going to school during this. It was a very partisan, if you can imagine. The growers and the um, were adamant they were not going to negotiate with uh, Mexican Americans. They saw them, or the Filipinos, or any ethnic group. They saw them as beneath themselves. You know, it was, you know, and so they didn't see them as as able to arrange their own affairs. They were very paternalistic toward them. Um, so as long as they felt that the living conditions 
were one notch above the countries they came from, being Mexico and the Philippines, mm-hmm. their conscience was assuaged. But um, but the living conditions of most of them were were primitive. So uh, that was what Caesar Chavez reacted to. He just wanted a fair shake for the workers. He wasn't asking for anything for free. Um, right. We, we go from people being working to the greater good to their own version of the greater good, but we won't get into that because I don't know the whole history behind it. <laughs> um, you mean the, the history behind um, agriculture? Because, yeah, because I'm not up to speed on the whole Mexican. Sure. I, I don't know. Well, if, if in, in just one minute, mm-hmm. um, so agriculture in the Central Valley, uh, as soon as the railroads in the 1870s, 1860s, opened up Central California, um, you know, we had the gold rush in 1850, but that petered out after about a decade. Right. So, so once the railroad came in in the 1860s, late, uh, early 1870s, they started laying track down the Central Valley and and bringing people in. And the and farmers from the east found that the Central Valley soil was the most fertile soil anywhere in the world. It's the deepest topsoil of any section of land in the world. So it was very fertile. It could grow anything if it had water. And um, it was basically free land. So the Central Valley became an agricultural hub from the very beginning. And uh, in the Midwest, where you're growing uh, very large crops, you know, potatoes and um, and and wheat, uh, and you have a you have a static population that can come in during the harvest season and, and help harvest. There wasn't that in California, so they always had to import labor. There's always so first it was the Chinese, um, then it was the Okies during the six you know during the uh, depression, and you read about that in Grapes of Wrath. Um, who came from the south who lost their farms and Okies and Midwesterners and farming was always a profit you know farmers worked on very thin profit margins right. so labor was the only thing they could control and so they had to keep their cost down from I'm giving you their point of view right right, right, right. and and so from their point of view, if they if they um, had to pay union wages um, and all of these other um, benefits that come with normal workplace rules, they didn't feel they could make a profit. So and farming from the time of uh, you know with with refrigeration and shipping, you're competing always on a global scale even back in the early 1900s. So <clears throat> there was always unrest in the Central Valley from the very beginning. And um, the farmers wouldn't allow the Chinese to settle. They wouldn't allow the Filipinos. They brought Filipinos over here, but they didn't allow them to bring their wives. Think about that. Because they didn't want them to, they didn't want them to become part of the community. They just were there for their labor. That's it. And when they yeah. got old, they had to go home. 
So it was a, um, you know, it didn't maybe start out to be abusive, but it became a very abusive um, situation. And you had all these migrants who would come through. There wasn't enough places for them to sleep. They'd sleep out in the open field. They'd sleep in their cars. Um, there's no toilet facilities. I mean, that just wasn't something farmers provided, you know. And mm-hmm. so um, communists came in, like a long short, and tried to organize in the 30s, 40s. That's what Steinbeck was writing about. And so the farmers were deadly afraid of communists. And they made, they broke up the unions because they were communist-inspired. Who would want a communist-run union on their farm? Right. So so there's just a deep, deep animosity here that stretched back decades. And um, by the time Cesar Chavez came on the scene in the 50s, the abuses were pretty settled in. And and pretty accepted by the community. If you want to work here, but they could make just enough wage that was more than what they ever could make in Mexico. Right. So they so people would come every season, and um, and as as so it, it was just such poverty in the um, Central Valley that Cesar Chavez, who had become an organizer for another organization, spent his life, early life, picking crops with his parents, said, you know, I'm going to do something about this. And he was not a communist. He was a Catholic, and he was motivated by his Catholic faith. That, um, and that's where the nonviolence came in, and that's what made him a different individual. And he was a true leader of the people. Um, and he advocated nonviolence. So the growers, every time there was uh, unrest, um, uh, new rumors of strikes, they would bring in their heavies who would break it up. They didn't, make, didn't care how they broke it up. They would use clubs. They would use um, scare people on the roads, run trucks close to the picketers, um, do whatever they had to do just to demoralize them. And then strikers being just human beings thought, well, we'll take revenge. And as soon as the violence started, the growers would call in, the sheriff would call in the National Guard. They're all arrested. And then the cycle would just start all over again. And um, Civil so unrest at its best. Which... That, that, exactly. It was just a continuous cycle that had been going on for decades. And, and then we can actually relate some of this that's going on today. We still have the migrant workers in the absolutely. valley. I yeah. mean, they're there. They're, you can't they're, say they're not. They're they're there, absolutely. And um, with the success of the union, the UFW, mm-hmm. um, and here's the odd thing about it, the historical element I had no idea it goes back to FDR, and this was to me fascinating discovering this. So, strikes were always very, very violent. Uh, labor actions in our country has a history of violence. Mm-hmm. The steel strikes in the 1880s. Um, it was not uncommon for for strikers to shoot at owners, and owners to strike back and 
and um, you know they just used violence. That was the the only method they could use. You know, once anger got to a certain point, so um, FDR said we're going to put a stop to this, and he got through the legislation called the National Labor Relations Act, 1933, granting workers in every classification in the country the right to collect a bargaining. They didn't need, so the communists now were out. The um, heavy labor leaders with their violent tactics were out. Individuals in a job if they wanted to collectivize, they got together, they took a vote, and they invited a union to come in and represent them. And that's what put the end to major labor unrest across our country. I except, did not know that. Yes. That law covered every category of worker except for two. And it was the Southern Democrats who... Um, Jim Crow was still in effect and the, and black workers uh, were sharecroppers on their lands mm-hmm. and black workers were housekeepers in their houses and they said those two categories can never have collective bargaining they said they told FDR we'll sign this we'll back you we'll sign the law if you exclude farm workers and domestic workers and that's the beginning of the unrest from 1933 till 1978 when Governor Brown changed it here in California. Farm workers could not organize. The growers had a right to break up these strikes, legal right. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. So Cesar so Chavez was starting in a hole before he even began. Right, if, because the it, federal government had already put a lid on it years before right and so we don't recognize you so he was not just striking for better wages he was striking for a fairer system now think about it would you go to a uh, you know if you were employee and you've been an employee sometime in your life Mm -hmm. and it's only fair that you get a bathroom break right it's all it's only fair that you, you have a right to bring water or the the employer would provide a drinking fountain in your um, in your place Area. of work. Yeah. yeah, and and he wouldn't dock you pay when you have to leave your desk or leave your machine to go to the um, to the bathroom and come back. Now right. think of a farm worker; they're way out in these fields. They might be a mile or two miles from a bathroom, and since they're doing piecework. It's all on them. If they want to walk to the bathroom, it's their time. If they want water, they have to bring it. And if they want bathrooms, if they want a break for the sh- because of the heat, um, everything is on them. So there was a basic unfairness because Cesar Chavez was not a stupid man. He only had an eighth grade education, mm-hmm. but he, he knew how things worked. And, and to make a clear point, he is an American-born person. He was born in, in in Arizona. So this was not about illegal immigration uh, or illegal immigrants. This was about truly about the rights of American workers. So uh, his leadership, his um, 
he led by example. So when he decided to uh, organize a union, mm-hmm. he um, quit his quit his um, job that gave him a middle class income, and he became one of them. He identified with them, and he led by example. So uh, he ate the same things they ate. He he was among them, and that's what, why he was so revered and respected. And he asked them to sacrifice to create a union, and he sacrificed for himself. Um, so it was it was a true movement as well as a, a labor uprising. And when he when in 1970, when the first strike was over, and he signed labor contracts with um, almost every major grower in the valley. Uh, grape grower, excuse me. Yes, grape grower. Uh, grape grower, uh, because then lettuce came next. It was a monumental achievement. It had never been done. And uh, and there was peace. Uh, workers knew the rules. Uh, growers had to provide, um, you know, potties, mm-hmm. uh, water, breaks, um other safety um, requirements, and um, and they had to pay a fair wage. And a fair wage was maybe only a quarter more an hour. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't huge. So it was a it was a true undertaking and a, and a breathtaking undertaking. Right. He, uh, so that's I mean, why I thought I thought yeah, this was a great this is a book to write about. This is a guy to write about. There's so many historical figures that start out disadvantaged and rise up through it, but yes. we can all, we still see this today, unfortunately. I mean, we still have the migrant workers that mm-hmm. no one wants in society. This isn't about immigration. This is about the workers that are already here. That's it, yes. Then we have, well, we still have the civil disobedience with the protests that we see across the country right now on different matters, not just civil rights. Well, it is civil rights because they're protesting being kept at home and away from jobs. But yes, that's, that's, that's a little different, but, but, it, but civil disobedience is in the DNA of Americans. Yes. So, it, it's, so it's, in our, it's in our DNA to, to um, organize together to uh, strive together to um, disobey for a reason to, to mm-hmm. regain a right. Yeah. Right. In, in, the, in the case of people rising up because they don't get their day at the beach, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, it's, it's a little trivial compared to what some people have, have sacrificed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, we to get had... What they want. Yeah, we had the protest during Vietnam. Our family Most members, definitely. Yes. Most definitely. Yes. Were being sent over to a war that most people didn't agree with. I won't Did get not into agree politics. with. I, Absolutely. I will not get into the politics behind it, but we had the civil disobedience across the country during Vietnam mm-hmm. to protest the war. Now you, you know, it happened. We're there to protest something that 
to gain back a right? Why are we doing something that we feel, as Americans, we shouldn't be doing? That's what this whole thing is about. But at the same time, the civil disobedience right now is a little trivial. Well, it's um, to those who think that the lockdown is going to erode their civil rights and that life is going to change after this and and the government is going to, um, I don't believe that. But if that does happen, then we do have this this power of civil disobedience, and it's in a in a democracy, it's it's a very effective power. Yes. And um, you know, no one could imagine that there was any type of of um, anti-war movement during World War II because we knew we were fighting a beast that mm-hmm. would consume the world if we didn't. Right. And but the but our laws allow an individual, if their conscience doesn't allow them to to go in that direction, uh, to fight, allows them the right to um, protest. Right. And to so civil disobedience is, is a is a part of our culture. It's it's um it's a respected form mm-hmm. um, of of reform. And um, in most you could cases, see, it has a positive outcome. Yes, not, it yes it does. It has a, not, it it has effect on yeah. on our institutions because in our country, the laws are derived, the power to rule is derived from the laws uh, from the people, mm-hmm. and we may not believe that in total, but that is the way it's supposed to be. Right. So protesting does work, but I'm not talking about the violent protesting. That's a completely Absolutely. different. Absolutely. The violent protesting is illegal. This, that's, this stupid is disruptive, and it actually hurts doing protesting correctly. Well, and that's what Cesar Chavez <clears throat> realized. That's why he went on as fast. So the strike started in 65. They'd been going for three years. By 68, uh, it would, the farmers were getting more belligerent. They refused to even sit down and talk. They, you know, to even have a non-binding negotiation, like let's go to the coffee shop and just talk about this. Mm-hmm. What do you guys want? They refused to even have that conversation. So, so the... What instead they did is they brought in some some thugs who incited um, fear and anger and uh, violence. And there were rumors going around that some of the farm workers are going to get guns and retaliate. They'd been shot at, they'd been beaten, so they were going to shoot back. And that's when Cesar Chavez went on his fast. It's a fast for nonviolence. It was not a hunger strike. And so a fast is really a derived from a religious uh, exercise, mm-hmm. a spiritual exercise where you look inside yourself. It's, it's penitential. You're looking inside yourself and saying, you know, what can I do to be a better person? What can I do to uh, make a more positive contribution? Mm-hmm. Uh, reflecting on your errors and your weaknesses. And the, the people, uh, his followers, followed suit and the violence stopped 
because Cesar Chavez knew the moment the strike turned violent, everything would be lost. Right. They would have they they would have the absolute right to call in the sheriff, the national guard, whatever. Mhm. We see this in some of the protests within the last ten years, where they've gotten violence and they call it a peaceful protest that this aired their right to destroy property. No, it's not. That's not a protest. That's I don't know what category that really falls under, but whatever message you're trying to get across is now lost. Exactly. It 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 destroys the credibility of the movement. And, um, you know, we've seen that on both sides in our last political election. Um, you know, people on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, in the extreme elements, use violence uh, as a form of, ang- you know, they let their anger get carried away with them. Yes. And it does. It it destroys the credibility of what you believe. Um, now, in other countries that don't have a democracy, um, violence this form is the only of, way to get across a message. Well, look what happens in Russia. If you protest too much, you get pushed off a bridge. Yes. Or you get some anonymously shot. Right now, the big controversy in Russia is doctors who um, don't agree with what's going on or happen to be falling out of windows. So it's this type of and we saw that even in China, a doctor who, who brought to the attention um, uh, this sickness early on, the Chinese government arrested him. Yeah. So in authoritative, um, authoritative uh, governments, societies, um, speaking your mind is a dangerous thing. And hopefully it doesn't get to be that here. Very true. Well, we're almost out of time, so where can our listeners find you and your books? Well, um, you can find at my uh, website, johndesimone.com. That's D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E. You also can find the Road to Delano on um, IndieBound at any of your independent bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And that's my Facebook page, too, John D. Simone Author. And I'd be glad to, um, happy to see any of your your listeners um, PM me or join my Facebook page and join the conversation on this exciting time in our American history. Exactly. An author always loves to connect with a reader. If you're a reader Absolutely. and you're reading the book, give us feedback. We live for this stuff. Trust me. The good, Again, the, the bad, everything. Yes. So it's The Road to Delano by John D. Simone, and you can find it just about everywhere. Sounds awesome, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Melissa, thank you for having me. And have a wonderful day and happy reading. Same to you. Thank you.